0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to How to College, our podcast where we get together with fellow first gents to talk about their journeys. What a glorious week this is! A lot of things have happened since we last chatted. We got a new president, and as a matter of fact, in the first couple of days, the president announced his new immigration proposal. So, this episode is extremely timely as his proposal suggests that DACA recipients might have a pathway to a citizenship, but first a residency in the first three years. So that is exactly what we will talk about today. What happens to two first-generation college students when they were able to adjust their immigration status and how their education journeys were impacted? So stay tuned. First, we'll begin with Diana, who I met when we were both graduate students at Harvard. Diana has a phenomenal story, so I can't wait to share that with you. Hi, Diana. How are you doing? Welcome to the show. Hi, Norma. Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. So let's just begin at the very, very beginning. Tell us a little bit about
1: yourself. Where were you born? So I was born in Tijuana, Mexico, and I came to the United States when I was six years old. We moved to the San Gabriel Valley in the greater Los Angeles area in California. And I came with my single mother and my two siblings, older siblings, Jose and Virginia. So it was really a family migration. And the way we came was with a tourist visa. And my mom worked in the United States for two years prior to her bringing us. So for a little bit, she was a transnational parent. Sending money back to Mexico, raising enough money to eventually get us here with visas.
0: How was that decision made? At what point did your mom come back to Tijuana and what did she say to you all? Like we're moving and this is why we're doing it. Tell us a little bit about that piece.
1: So I remember very little from that time because I was six and you know, at that time when you're developing a migration is significant for a child's life. So I often don't remember what happened because I think it was a traumatic moment and just moving, not knowing what happens. But what I do remember is her telling me now older that she told us that we were going to go to Disneyland. Many, many of us come with that story, and that we were just visiting and being on vacation. And if the immigration officer asked us, that was the goal to just say that we were taking a family trip to Disneyland. But I remember the whole process was really draining. I mean, you really have to have some financial capital because you have to make multiple appointments to even get a visa. My mom owned property in Mexico. Granted, it wasn't a big property, but some level property. And she was able to have that to prove that they were able to afford a vacation. So there's little things like that, that we were really humble and, and came from poverty. But because she worked in the US, she was able to sort of pay off her land, send, you know, get that property to eventually bring us here. But yeah, everything was blurry for me. And even to this day, my family family has never been to Disneyland. So it's something that I joke with her. Of like, mommy, like dijiste que we, we're gonna go to Disneyland. And it's been 22 years, and we still haven't been to Disneyland. And so it is one of my personal dreams now that I'm a working professional to save enough money to eventually well. So then you settle in
0: California, time progresses, and at some point your visa expires. When do you realize that you no longer have a legal stance in this
1: country? We had a couple of different moments before we landed at losing status. So when I was seven, we went back to Tijuana to renew our visa. So it was about that time to kind of make sure that all the paperwork was good enough, we actually got stuck in Mexico. And I for the first time went to Mexico schooling for a couple months, because we weren't able to come back smoothly as we had thought. And so I had to spend a couple of months there. I don't remember how long, but I remember my mom being very stressed about like, this wasn't part of the plan, we were just supposed to come renew our visa and then go back to start, you know, public education in the United States. So once we finally were able to be unstuck and come back to the states after renewing our visa we had about 10 years and i remember in so in 2008 uh, i was a sophomore my brother was a junior he was Pretty committed to the college going process. And he researched himself, you know, how do we make it to college? He told our high school counselor, you know, this is our situation. I'm undocumented and I want to go to college. And a typical story, they say you can't go to college, you can only go to community college. So, right at this moment, my brother is a pretty smart kid and he is self driven, self motivated. He did a bunch of research and figured out we could go to private schools. And even with our immigration status, if they're well or their lead, if they have the endowment, then we can get a full ride. And so my whole dream and my whole hope since of probably since being a first year sophomore in high school was get a full ride scholarship. And so but really, my brother paved the way he wasn't able to get into a private school because he had to work two jobs in high school and his grades dropped. But because of his sacrifice, I was able to get into a private school once I graduated. And so even though my brother didn't live out the dream, I was able to take advantage of the opportunities and fulfill the whole goal. My brother ended up going to a public institution, UCLA, which is a great school. But at that time, there was no California Dream Act, we did have AB 540 And so he qualified for in state tuition, but he had no dining hall access, no housing and no tuition assistance. And so that was a very different experience in the type of experience that I had at Pomona College, a small liberal arts school that gave me a full ride scholarship, despite of my status. So I actually did not know all these things about your brother who
0: sounds freaking amazing. So let me ask you, where do you think that came from? Like, What sparked his interest to say, we are doing this college journey in spite of our immigration journey? Was it your mom? Was it a counselor? Where do you think he got that idea from?
1: You know, I I really would love to ask him that. Yeah, my brother is amazing. He's actually finishing up a PhD in biology in California, and he's going to be a professor of science. So I'm really proud of him. He's lived such a hard life. In my mind, my mom has lived the hardest life I've ever known for anyone. Then it's like my sister, and then it's like my brother. And so like everyone in my family has lived such incredibly challenging, but my brother has nevertheless found aspirational capital. And this is something that Terry also talks about in her cultural wealth model of the belief that you can aspire to do something despite the odds despite the statistics and where does this belief come from i do think for him that aspirational capital came from my mom's resiliency i mean growing up with a strong independent latina woman who is raising three kids in a country, you know, I think there's just so much modeling that she did about we just have to keep working. We just can't give up poor people and marginalized people don't have the privilege to let go of hope. We always have to hold on to hope because hope is the only thing and dreaming and aspiring to something is the only thing that we can really find certain in in the midst of such an uncertainty. But yeah, I think it's it's really just wanting to make sure that my mom's sacrifices were not in vain. I don't think it was a teacher or a mentor. Although we have We had mentors, but I think more than anything, it's it's the inspiration that we get from our mom, seeing her struggle and wanting to make that struggle be less of a struggle in the future.
0: So why did you think that education would essentially alleviate that struggle? Because as you know, in this country, there's a lot of people who still think that education is not necessarily the way to go for a lot of students. So there could have been a lot of ways to alleviate poverty, right? He could have gone straight to get a job. But there was an investment that I think he saw and that you saw. And I'm wondering why you think he saw education as the avenue to a better life.
1: Yeah, I can definitely resonate because one of my mom's sort of friends from Tijuana, they both met in the States, but they were both from Tijuana. We grew up with them. And so they're kind of like our pseudo cousins. We actually, all of my cousins stayed in Mexico. So this is the immigrant family that I grew up with the most and that we would hang out like if it were just family members. And we were all undocumented. We were all born in Tijuana and we were all growing up around the same time and going to school around the same time. And so in comparison to my childhood best friend and her family, my brother and I's trajectory went a completely different way than their trajectory. But we had very similar sort of circumstances and choices that we could make. I think where this desire came from is we both loved school where like my childhood best friend, they didn't really enjoy school. For me, for us, my brother and I, we felt like school was an escape from our reality. We couldn't control finances. My mom always struggled to pay rent. My mom always struggled to put food on the table. But somehow we could control our grades. We could control our ability to perform and in right to assimilate to learn the language to get good at a system that rewards achievement and hard work and this idea of meritocracy is something that we believed in i think it was the sense of like america can give you an opportunity to start over and to do something with yourself now that I'm an adult, I obviously have a better sense of systemic injustices and things that make it harder for us to achieve. But at that time, we truly believed that if we wanted to go to school, if we wanted to study, there had to be a way it can't be that we can't just waste our four years of high school. The thing about my brother and I is we were both competing for the best grades. And so we were top of our class, even in middle school, we got like the most awards when we graduated from our middle school. And we would always compete like I got more awards than you and then you know, vice versa. And it's not like, My mom ever gave us, you know, dinero or un domingo for getting grades. We didn't have a domingo. We couldn't afford that. But it was a sense of like both of us motivated each other because my mom actually, she never really motivated us to go to school or to study hard. She just worked really, really hard to put food on the table. And so for us, it was a sense of like, we have to make her life better by being good students. And I think we both found ourselves to be very smart and intelligent and hardworking. And we get that from both of our parents. So part of it could be genetics, part of it could be immigrant struggle. You just Have to keep going. I think for us, we never saw the choice to just work because that wasn't working. My mom took us to a factory job that she worked. It was a newspaper factory. When I was 12 years old, my brother was 14, and she put us to work. We used to work every Sunday from like 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. and we used to go to church right after work. And so we were desvelados. We didn't have any sleep that night. And she would tell us, "If you guys don't go to school, you guys are gonna have to work these jobs for the rest of your life." because this is what I have to do for the rest of my life. So I think, and someone could say those are very traumatic moments for children, but those moments were the moments where like, we get it. Like we understand what we have to do.
0: But yeah, for sure. When I was, I think I was maybe nine or 10, my mom used to take me to go clean houses with her and I hated it. <laughs> I hated it. I was just like, oh my gosh, like, I don't want to do this. Like, obviously I love my mom. I respect her profession, but she that, that was basically the message, what your mom said as well like, if you don't get your act together through school, these are the types of jobs that are waiting for you. And if, and if you like them, and they make you happy, go for it, you don't have to study that hard. But if you don't like them, and luckily, I didn't, then you you really have to hustle. And so that it's really funny, because I, I think immigrant parents in their search of inspiration, in their search of wanting a better life for us, um, sometimes do push the boundaries a little bit, you know, where anybody looking from the outside would be like, Hey, that's child labor, what are you doing? But I think they have their own ways to teach us lessons. And and I appreciated that a lot about my mom, because gosh, like if you asked me to go clean a house or read a book any day, I would rather read a book.
1: Exactly. And because we both had moms who clean other people's houses, we have tremendous respect for the service industry. I mean, there's that value that you gain of like the people behind the scenes are regular people that we grew up with, you know, these are our heroes, our heroes.
0: Yeah, definitely. So you go to college, and you start your journey as an undocumented individual. And then somewhere along your college journey in 2012, President Obama comes out at the White House, and he announces DACA. Obviously, you qualify for DACA. So tell us a little bit about what your DACA experience was like, what kind of doors were open to you? How did that essentially transform your life?
1: there's so many moments that I remember. I remember even before DACA, when the DREAM Act passed the House of Representatives in 2010, or at least it passed one of the Senate or the House of Reps, one of those. And I remember being in college with our Immigrant Rights Org that I started. It was called Ideas at the Claremont Colleges. I got the idea from UCLA where my brother went. Because when my brother went to UCLA, it was in 2009 when we were fighting for the federal DREAM Act. And he actually flew to Washington, D.C. to participate in protests. And he did hunger strikes at UCLA in ideas. So he really paved the way for me on how to be not only a college student, but an undocumented student activist. And so I learned a lot of my strategies from ideas at UCLA. So we brought that to the Claremont colleges. We watched the hearing, the house hearing on Dream Act in 2010. We all cried because they passed one of them, but it didn't pass the other. And then fast forward to 2012, I was in Sacramento when it passed and I was in the middle of a summer legislature fellowship in Sacramento through the Chicano Latino Youth League leadership project. And half of my fellowship cohort, we were only six, but half of us were undocumented students. And we all felt this huge sense of relief. Like we couldn't believe that DACA had passed. And well, it was an executive action. Later, I would learn that it was through a lot of undocumented individual activism. It wasn't because of Obama's heart was changed. It was really a very political move. But nevertheless, I was grateful for it. And I was about to be a junior in college. So it was a little bit too late for me to take advantage of advanced parole and to. travel abroad at that time, but it opened up new opportunities where on campus, I had a job position through the public service center, and they actually hired me, I was the only undocumented student they hired at that year at that time, and they would pay me through reimbursement processes. But once I got DACA, I was able to be a regular student employee, I was able to get a regular monthly check as opposed to, you know, put the money up front, buy a little something here and there and then get reimbursed. And so I was really grateful for that opportunity. The other thing, I was able to get my driver's license right away. And that was a big moment because it was my first government ID that I had from the state. So I had a matricula and it was a whole thing to get a matricula at that time. I even remember Norma, like I went to the Los Angeles embassy to get my Mexican matricula and passport when I was 18 years old with my mom. And they questioned if I was Mexicana because I'm so light skinned. And so they literally told me, are you sure you're in the right place? And I was like, why would I be here if I didn't have to be here? Like who chooses to stand in line for four hours and then potentially get a government ID, right? And so there's all these things that happen. But up to 2012, when I got my license, it just opened up so many opportunities. But one thing I will say is college mentors and staff members at that time were critical in my life. So to get my biometrics, they actually I, I went to school in Claremont, California, it's 45 minutes from downtown LA, we lived in Koreatown, my mom had moved. So we lived in Koreatown at that time. So my biometrics appointment was all the way in Koreatown in that area. And I didn't have a car at that time. And it would have taken me three to four hours to commute from Claremont to because the public transportation is just a a hot mess in California, sometimes SoCal, specifically. And so one of my professors, he was my thesis advisor, and just a great mentor, I had told him about my DACA biometrics appointment. And he said, actually, I have that day off, I can take you. And um, at that time, I was not thinking about all the power dynamics and everything. But what I was grateful for is that on the way to LA, my professor of history took me, he coached me on how to even encounter the biometrics place. He's like, you're going to go into the immigration center. How are you feeling like he was just providing such moments of reflection. And and he told me this is just the beginning. Like you're going to get your DACA work permit, you're going to have protection from deportation. And then this is just gonna morph into something more permanent. Like he's like, I'm so excited for you. This is amazing. I'm so honored that I can be a part of it. Like he truly felt like a true mentor, someone who cared about that moment and someone who would take maybe three hours of his day to drive me there and back you know without his help i would have had to take in the train and the bus and all of that and have to feel so alone because i would have gone into that immigration center all by myself for
0: those of our listeners who are not from texas or california having a driver's license is a big big deal because it is not easy to utilize public transportation it's there but in big cities like LA and Houston, a car is really, really needed. So for me, getting a driver's license similarly was the biggest deal of my life, bigger than so many other things. And it was also really cool that you had a mentor and a friend and someone there to kind of support this journey and let you know what to expect. So then you d- you get DACA, you graduate from college, and then you mentioned briefly advanced parole. And for our audience who might not know, essentially, You apply for this exit ticket, if you will, to leave the country, to go anywhere. It does not have to be the country where you were born. And then you are literally paroled. So when you enter the US, they send you to a separate room. And depending on the officer you get, and I did two advanced paroles, I had a very good officer who was like, yes, coming in, welcome home. And then I had another one who was not a good and pleasant experience. But anyways, essentially, this individual holds the power to either let you back into the country or not let you back into the country.
1: So did you get to do advanced parole? I actually didn't get to do advanced parole. I had guy for five years years from junior in college, and then through my master's program in Boston. And so I didn't feel like I needed to travel for my education for the things that I was studying. But for me, I was already scared Norma to even travel within the States. And the thought of leaving is is another burden, uh, or at least scarier. I also had privilege that I didn't need to do advanced parole to be able to adjust my status later on, because I came with the tourist visa, I already had a legal point of entry in my sort of immigrant documents and my passports, where some of my friends, who... Literally needed to do advanced parole if they ever wanted to adjust their status in the future and become a permanent resident is you need that legal point of entry. And so for many folks who took advantage of that, that advanced parole helped them to now hopefully become green card holders or citizens if they're able to qualify now through marriage or whatever the case may be. So I never took advantage of it. I felt like I'm already risk averse in so many ways. But once I got my permanent residency, my green card, that's when I first traveled to Mexico and I was already a green card holder.
0: And I think you hit it right on the spot. It does not guarantee that you will be able to come back into the country legally. And it is something that I thought a lot about when I did it. But ultimately, Diana, my strategy was that if somebody was not going to let me in, I was going to blow the media up. I was going to say Harvard student not allowed back in after meeting with the president of Mexico and like the media would eat that up. And so I felt because of my extremely privileged position that for me, the risk was worthwhile, exactly because of what you just mentioned, I needed to have a stamp in my passport to be able to adjust by immigration status. So tell us a little bit about how you were able to adjust your status. So you went from DACA to having a green card and what that journey has been like.
1: Absolutely. So I got my green card. First, it's a conditional residency, I got married in 2016, to my college love, and he was born in the United States. We're both from Los Angeles, both Latinos, and we didn't know how to adjust. since. So I'm very, very grateful for higher education. At that time, I was a third year master's student at Harvard. Um, We're both alums of that institution. And so after Trump got elected, Harvard and many other higher ed institutions wanted to provide their undocumented and their vulnerable immigrant students legal support. And so Harvard hired a lawyer right after Trump's election in the fall of 2016. And he was hired January 23rd, 2017. And the reason why I remember is because I was his first appointment. I was his first client. And I was knocking on his door as soon as he got hired, and I said, I need to become a permanent resident, right? The Trump administration had just started. Everything felt so uncertain about our future. I had just recently gotten married in the summer of 2016. And so I was his first client, and I am so grateful that I had legal representation that was afforded to me pro bono because I was a graduate student of that institution. So I benefited from my status as a student. And that's something that not everyone has. To go through immigration adjustment statuses without legal, rep- it's already so scary. One thing is we're educated and we could read through the forms, but nevertheless, you still have that fear. You're going to mess up and you're going to pay this a hundred and you know, thousands of dollars and then not get something right. And so I think it was just so much emotional labor and anxiety gets dedicated to applying to things. I qualified to become a citizen and I have to do that on my own, my own citizenship application and telling you the truth, Norma, I haven't had the emotional capacity to fill out my own citizenship form. I just like the thought of someone else doing it for me because it's just easier, but I'm no longer a student. So I have to do it on my own. But yes, I think once I got married, it was a pretty smooth process going from DACA to conditional permanent where you're a permanent resident for two years before you get the full permanent residency because you know they always want to validate marriages they want to make sure that everything is real and so we had to show proof of living together and having financial costs together we we're both broke college grad students and so we didn't have a lot of financial things <laughs> there at that time but we started living together and we like started to we made a trip to New York together or in New York is only like four hour twenty dollar bus for from Boston. And we had a bunch of pictures from our um, two years of dating and our like six years of friendship. And so for us, it was pretty legitimate. And my lawyer (laughs) told me when I finally went into my interview for conditional permanent residency, like they had to interview both the couple, he was like, you're the most prepared client that I've ever had. Literally, I had a binder. This is the hard work ethic in me I had a binder of pictures, everything was organized, you know, birth certificates, marriage certificates, letters from our friends validating our relationship relationship I even had my baptism and like my grades like whatever I needed to prove to for this to happen I was like <laughs> whatever they need I am ready and they didn't even ask for any additional documentation they just asked for a couple pictures from our wedding it was just so simple for us but I'm grateful because I you know other people have interviews that are really daunting and really exhausting for us it was very basic information like who are each other's family members I think it was like who you know what are the last names of both people and test us on different things, but we were over prepared for that interview. And I think it's because there's just so much at stake for us where other people, you know, they, co- they're international students, they just become a permanent resident. But for us, we've been living here for decades. And like, this is our one chance that we do not want to blow for sure. So how do you think your
0: perception has changed from having DACA, which was very uncertain to now being a permanent resident? Do you think psychologically something has changed?
1: I think the biggest change is my... My ability to travel. I mean, the ability to go back to Mexico. I've only been once because I just became a, a resident, a permanent resident. Actually, this year I just became a full permanent resident. So I have my 10 year card. But before that, I had conditional. And it's so recent. It's been the last two years of really reflecting what what it means to be post undocumented and what it means to unlearn some of the trauma that I've lived with. Granted that I have light skin privilege, I've been light skin all my life. And although I've been scared of police and authorities, my whole life and enforcement and ICE and La Migra, I realized that they're not scared of me because of the way that I look. And so there's that sense of self-awareness of there's already this light swing privilege that I have. And now to add legal resident privilege of like, wow, I have the ability to travel without really, well, without really fearing my travel. I, I mean, when I first traveled with my me- Mexican passport from LA to Boston, when I was visiting the prospective grad program that I was going to attend, I was so scared. I was trembling, like I gave my Mexican passport to the the little agent I don't even know what they're called and I just didn't say anything but again it was this reminder of are they gonna flip through my pages and find that I don't have a visa and like those type of things but like now like I give my Mexican passport because I still have a Mexican passport I don't have a U.S. passport but I know that I have a permanent g- resident green card that I can show if I got questioned I mean there's so much legal privilege there I think the difference is the psychological on learning takes a little bit longer and I don't think I'll ever get to the point where I forget what it's like to be undocumented. I mean, it's so woven into our lived experience and 20 years, maybe with 10 years of actual awareness of it and the pain of seeing, even when I watch TV shows and immigration comes up, like I'm just so vulnerable to whatever is presented on media. And I will always identify with the community because it's my people. It's one of the identities that has formed me the most, one of the experiences that I'm most proud of. Like, I definitely have gone from being afraid to now being like unapologetic and also being an ally. And I think learning how to be an ally to the very community that I am a part of, even though I am not undocumented anymore, I am recently formally undocumented. And I know that I will eventually become a citizen and I will always be committed to being an advocate for this community. I think this is the community that I'm like dedicating my whole life and my career and my future. I just don't think that you can forget about it unless you were never really identifying with the movement. Once you're a part of the movement and it's the community that embraces that made you feel like you belong then you, I, there's a sense of we'll always be given back to this community so I think overall a lot has changed physically and like legally what I can do but I think on learning and healing I'm going to therapy now like the healing from some of these things and the fears that we learn to be normal and accustomed to is something that's going to take more time but I think over time and as I give back and I support undocumented students in my profession now it's such a great experience to be able to say like I've been there I know what that's like I'm not there anymore, because I have my status fixed. But I I know exactly how you're feeling. And maybe not exactly because Trump's administration has been so horrifying and terrifying for our community. But I can resonate very strongly in the way that my colleagues who are student affair professionals could never resonate.
0: So to finish this up, why don't you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do today, you alluded a little bit to being able to support students, but if you could just expand on what it is that you do, and how exactly are you supporting other
1: undocumented students? I work in student affairs, particularly in diversity and inclusion, where I support marginalized students like first generation, low income students, undocumented students, students of color, I have the privilege to supervise an internship program of 20 interns who are amazing, phenomenal students who do dialogues who do trainings for student orgs and who do programming in the resident life. And so I've been able to be exposed to a a couple of different parts of higher education, and I completely love it. I'm really grateful to be in the field that I'm in. It's it's a giving profession service profession, feel like I'm in the right place at the right time right now. But I'm also excited for the future when I think about doctoral studies and to do undocu research to study the population that I most closely identify with, right? I'm, a, I'm Latina, I'm first gen, I'm formally undocumented. And I think being able to do research by our people for our people and the nuances that we can bring up, I can think of our dear friend Carolina Valdivia and the work she's doing and her PhD and at Harvard Graduate School of Education. Now she's a professor, I mean, those are the type of things I might not go on the faculty side, but I want to go on the higher ed administrative side. And I want to become a dean of students. I want to become a senior leader in colleges and universities and potentially even a president of a university one day, because I think I don't want to limit myself, but I also feel like we need these institutions of higher learning to be run by people who resonate with the most marginalized communities and who can make institutional policies that can pave the way for other colleges and universities to also admit undocumented students Students, give them financial aid, admit first gen low income students and provide them with the inf- infrastructure to succeed, right? We, we want to take students from just surviving, which is what some of us did, especially my brother really surviving to really thriving and to feel like they're truly take equitable, educate, higher educational experience compared to their, their peers and their colleagues. So that's my hope and dream. I think one thing that, that I love is connecting my students to other people who are in the same career. So for example, this week alone, I'm met with three undocumented students, two prospective students who are applying to Harvard, who are high school students right now. And they just wanted to know, does Harvard admit undocumented students? Do they give them financial aid? The typical questions that I was like, yes, and yes, and yes. And I gave them a bunch of resources. And the other student is a Wellesley student who wants to be a lawyer. And she's currently without DACA. And you know, she wants to navigate the legal field. And so I loved connecting. I just connected her to a, a dear friend from California, who is at Columbia, Law school, doing a degree there, and she's also undocumented and has DACA. So I love when I can bring students together and say, like, here I'm your mentor, but let me give you a peer mentor, someone who's a little younger who can help you along your journey. Because it's been, it's been ten years since I graduated high school. It's been a couple years out of college, and then things are constantly changing. So if I can connect my students and talk about networking, then the importance of leveraging who they know. Because I learned the hard way that even though you have a master's degree from elite institutions, you still have to work really hard to break into a field. And it took me months before I found my job at Harvard, I was on my way back to LA with no housing with no money, my husband and I we were going to relocate and live in my mom's style to like start over. And then a job at Harvard came through two weeks before we left. And we had no apartment, we had no furniture, we had to start all over. And it was because the reality of first gen professionals finding jobs and breaking in and it takes three to six months to even find an opportunity. And so we learned the hard way of we need to get out there, we need to connect with people because we never know what kind of opportunities present themselves if we just let people know we're looking or the skills or the passions in our lives. So that's what I'll leave you away for for any advice of our young people listening. I love that. And
0: I look forward to the day that we can call you a president of the university. But we wish you the best of luck. We know that you have some exciting things coming up. Do keep us posted and we would love to have you again uh, once you're settled into the next step of your career to talk to us about many more topics that we didn't get to cover this time. But we thank you so, so much for your time. Next, we'll hear from my other good friend Annie, who is an immigrant from Pakistan, and I met her when I did a program at the University of Texas. So Annie, welcome to the show.
2: How are you doing today? I am doing really well. I'm so excited to be here and talking with you. Thank you so,
0: so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to chat with our audience. So let's begin by you just telling us a little bit about yourself.
2: Yeah, so my name is Annie Thar. I am an immigrant. I used to be on DACA for a long time, which... We'll talk about it a little bit later in this interview. I was raised in Houston, spent a lot of time in Austin. I currently live in the Bay Area where I'm the immigration program officer at a philanthropy called the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. But like many undocumented youth, I came to this country when I was about two years old with my family. And it took me until 2017 when I was about 26 to finally adjust my status.
0: So I had no idea you came to Houston originally, for some reason, I always associated you with Austin, Texas, because I guess that's where you went to undergrad. And that's sort of where you stayed the majority of your life.
2: Yeah, but actually, I grew up in Houston, like it's, it's the place that I definitely consider my hometown. Oh, I'm super happy to hear that. You know, I'm a big
0: time H town supporter. So Annie, tell us a little bit about you coming to this country.
2: Who did you come with? And where did y'all come from? So we came from Pakistan, and I first came with my mom, my older sister and my dad ended up joining us later. Our immigration story is complicated, like a lot of people's stories throughout my, you know, whole life in America, we tried to adjust our status through a lot of different means. And we ended up hitting, you know, dead end after dead end. Ultimately, my family applied for asylum because we come from this really persecuted religious minority group in Pakistan. I was in high school when we applied for asylum. The case took again till 2017 to wrap up and from about 2010 to 2017 my family actually was in deportation proceedings so it was a really harrowing experience and we were definitely one of the lucky ones to have gotten through it but it was a situation that literally took my entire life to get through
0: So Annie, oftentimes when people think about the immigration story and think about DACA, they oftentimes affiliated with countries in Latin America. So I don't know if you happen to know any stats. I always try to tell everyone that this is a story that unfortunately hits a lot of people from a
2: lot of different places. So I'm sure you happen to know more. Yeah, I mean, in Texas, this statistic might be a little bit outdated. But as of just a couple of years ago, there were over 20,000 immigrants who were eligible for DACA in Texas. And Asian immigrants are actually Asian Americans are the fastest growing demographic in the United States. It is really stark to see how they're often overlooked in in immigration debates. But there are 10s of 1000s, if not hundreds of 1000s of people with DACA who are from non Latin American countries all over America.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think that the more we talk about it, and and you're right, part of it has to do with bringing people into the debate and bringing people into the conversation. But I think the more we as a nation are aware that this is not an issue that only affects X population, I think the more people we're going to have on our side as advocates. I would love to know just from your own personal life, if you could remember the day that you learned that you were here undocumented, how
2: old were you? Like a lot of people, it happened to me, it really clicked for me when I was in high school, and I was looking at applying to colleges or uh, trying to figure out how I could get my license. You know, I was told by my family, you're not going to be able to do these things in the same way that other people are. And we might have to wait a little bit longer before you can do things like drive with a license. But all my life, I knew that our immigration status put us at a disadvantage when it came to kind of opportunities and the kinds of access and rights that other people had. So for example, my mom worked Throughout my whole childhood, she worked jobs where she was paid under the table. She took care of people's children. She worked in fast food restaurants. She did all sorts of things. And I was told by everybody to never mention that she worked. And if anyone ever asked me to, like my teachers, to tell them that she stayed home all day. So even though it was high school, like it is for a lot of undocumented youth, that I realized, like this is what it means to be undocumented. This is this is there's a word undocumented used to describe my experiences. The challenges that my family and I faced, I was pretty aware of my whole life.
0: And do you think that that affected your education view? Do you think that you felt that, oh, man, I really can get a driver's license, I probably won't even be able to get tuition? Did that curtail in some way your aspirations or dreams? Or did that even make you fight harder?
2: I think it was a little bit of both. But for the first part, it was definitely that it curtailed a lot of my ambitions, I realized that I wouldn't be able to apply to schools out of state for undergrad, because again, this was before DACA existed. So you know, I didn't have a lot of options in terms of financial aid and support. And I had to rejigger some of my goals and decide to apply to schools in Texas, which ended up being fine. Even throughout my undergraduate experience, there were a lot of opportunities that were kind of off limits to me. So it became This kind of a game where when a door was closed in my face, I had to figure out, okay, well, where else can I go? What else can I do? And so ultimately, I ended up kind of fighting harder for opportunities and even becoming an activist and an organizer that was fighting for the opportunities for other people, because I didn't really, I didn't want them to have the same experience that I had growing up and going through college. So
0: ultimately, you went to college without DACA. And I did too, as you know, and part of me always wondered, why am I doing this? At the end of the day, when all of it is said and done, am I even going to be able to work legally in this country? And I am wondering if you felt some of that as well as you were going through your college experience? Like, why am I doing this? Why suffer through all of this if there is no light at the end of the tunnel?
2: Oh, absolutely. When I was a sophomore in college, my family got put in deportation proceedings. So that added to the stress of it. And I went to UT Austin, which is a really incredible school. And looking around me, I saw, you know, folks doing these amazing internships, they were studying abroad, they were meeting all these amazing people in their field and developing these relationships that were going to serve them for the rest of their life. And I would sit there and think maybe I should drop out of college, right? Maybe I can come back to this, at a later time. And I grew up in a house where like in many Asian immigrant families, the idea that you would not go to college isn't really an option. It was always expected of me. It was always something that I had to figure out how to get to yes to and so did my sister despite the challenges that we were facing. So there were certainly times when I was in college dealing with my family's immigration case dealing with the fact that I was not going to be able to get a job like the rest of my friends when I graduated that I was like, is this worth it? What am I still doing here? This is actually one of of the things that started me on my journey as an immigrant rights activist and as an organizer on political issues like this, I was part of the strategy. There was kind of a national coordinated grassroots strategy to help pass DACA in 2012, and that was when I was a junior in college. And I worked on that in Central Texas and through the state of Texas, doing you know campaigns and press events and all sorts of communications work to really tell these kinds of stories that you're talking about. To tell the stories of my undocumented many friends who were graduating that year and how they had these amazing degrees, you know, they were pre-med or they were wanted to go to law school or they were engineers. And they were telling us, well, I guess i will go work at my family's restaurant, you know, washing dishes under the table or something like that. So as difficult as it was, it was that I do want to mention it was the thing that really prompted me to kind of get involved in the advocacy for DACA itself. So I
0: I know that you spent so much time, effort and energy of your life fighting for DACA. And and for that, I and, and a lot of people that benefited from it will forever be thankful for that because we know that it was not given to us. We know that it was a lot of sweat and tears that went with that. So tell me, it is now the summer of 2012. President Barack Obama comes out and he says DACA is a thing. It's real. It's happening. What is going through your mind at that point?
2: I remember I was watching the announcement and the coverage of it from an office where I was interning as an undergrad and the family that I was working for, they were lobbyists at the Texas State Capitol and they were actually Republican lobbyists. And I remember being nervous. Telling them Why I was so excited about this situation and they themselves were actually lovely people and they were very sympathetic, I, I believe towards undocumented immigrants and towards undocumented youth, but I didn't really know that. So I was just kind of showing them, you know, these news clips to see what their reaction was. And they thought it was a really great, it was a really great thing. And they, they thought it was very exciting. And I told them, you know, I helped work on this and I helped do my part in kind of getting this passed. And they thought that was really exciting as well. But I remember I did not tell them that I was actually going to benefit from it. They didn't know I was undocumented because at that point, I was still too afraid to tell them. But it was such a huge celebration for people like me and my friends who had not just been fighting for it, but who knew what this simple protection from deportation and work permit, that it was going to completely transform our lives and give us a stability that we had never had. And passing DACA was probably the most consequential immigration policy that has been passed in the last 20 to 30 years in terms of affirmative immigration relief. So as
0: somebody looking outside in, I I can only imagine how this looks, right? Like this is democracy at play. This is people voicing out what we need and what we want and what we deserve and actually happening. I mean, as you know, policy takes such a long time. And so this is, as you mentioned, a moment in time where this idea of a democratic involvement where people and government sort of speak and draft together, it's magical and and it happens. And then the moment came where we realized not everybody qualifies, which was extremely heartbreaking. But obviously, as you mentioned, it was transformative for many of us. Um, So tell me, how did it transform
2: your life? So it transformed my life in a couple of ways. One was that I got DACA shortly after I graduated. So in 2014, a couple months after I graduated from college, and it took a long time for whatever reason for my file to get processed. And so between the time that I graduated and got it, I didn't have legal work authorization, right? And so I had to turn down all these jobs and I had to turn down all these opportunities. And I couldn't really explain to a lot of people like my mentors exactly why that was. But once I got it, it helped me not just provide for myself, but gain kind of a sense of independence and and stability in, in my life that I hadn't known and that millions of DACA recipients had never known before. It allowed me to provide for my family, to get things like health insurance. And I think overall, it resulted in like a very mainstreaming of the experience of undocumented youth. I think we forget that this is a movement that's only really been around for about 20 years. And it was DACA that helped us integrate so fully in workplaces and in educational institutions and in the rest of you know, in the rest of our communities that it showed a lot of people what we were talking about when we said that the immigration system was broken. And it really increased the kind of support that people had for undocumented youth, which helped us win on a variety of other kind of campaigns and issues as activists and organizers and political strategists. And then another way that it really benefited me was, you know, I mentioned that my family was in deportation proceedings for about seven years. So once I got DACA and my sister got DACA, we were still in a situation where our parents uh, had former Deportation proceedings filed against them, and they would be given kind of like a postponement uh, prosecutorial discretion for about a year at a time. And so every year that their case was coming up, uh, my sister and I would have to help do outreach to members of Congress to get like letters of support for their case. And one of the things that you know they would always mention in their letters was this family has two daughters on DACA, and that should show you that they are like a part of America. They have like a home here they have like, you know, they have like a sense of belonging here.
0: No, that's exactly right. I don't think I've heard enough of this stories of what happens to the extended family once their daughters have or had DACA. I think for many of us, because obviously our parents did not qualify for it, it just meant that, you know, we had to wait and until many, many years later to be able to help our family in, in one way or another. I also want to look back to something you said, and I think this is something that I felt hit very close to home. And you talked about this fear of not wanting to let anybody know, even that nice family that was Republican that, you, you know, you never even mentioned, hey, by the way, I'm benefiting from this. And I'm wondering if that is a sentiment that is carried because we live in Texas, that is a majority Republican state, or if that's like a fear that we instilled in ourselves, because I look at like folks from California, who I think were a little bit more open about their stories than per se folks from Texas. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've only lived in California now for about two years, but it's very night and day in terms of how people feel comfortable talking about something like immigration status. And it's partly because there is a very high degree of like government support for immigrants, including undocumented immigrants in places like California, New York, and, and other states. I certainly was very quiet about it, even when I had DACA, because I was operating oftentimes in professional spaces that had nothing to do with politics and nothing to do with immigration. And because Texas is a little bit more of a conservative state, I participated in campaigns and things like that, where I talked about my story. So that wasn't that wasn't new. Like if you googled me, you would know exactly what my story was, you would know that I was undocumented, but it wasn't the kind of thing that I ever led with, even when I started formally working on immigration at my job after I graduated, it wasn't the kind of thing that I led with, because Texas is a politically a very different place. And because, like I said, before DACA, although people knew you know, that undocumented immigrants exist, that undocumented youth exist, they still didn't really understand the issue. And even the kind of support institutionally from, let's say, colleges and universities that is now available to DACA recipients, that took several years to kick in. It didn't happen overnight. It took several years for scholarships to start adding that clause, like that if you're a DACA recipient, you qualify. It took several years for places like the University of California to develop outreach and support resources for the undocumented youth on their campuses, right? So none of this really happened overnight. And I I do think part of it has to do with the fact that for me and you, like we were going through the situation when it was still pretty early, and when public recognition of it was still pretty low.
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, as you know, Rice University, when I attended, did not offer any financial aid to undocumented people. And it was actually one of my mom's bosses, who, by the way, is also a very nice Republican paid for my tuition to go to Rice University for four years, a total of about $300,000. Because at that point, Rice, like I said, did not offer anything. Obviously, that has changed. It did not change overnight. It took almost six years for the policy to change. And so you're right, I think people People nowadays are growing up in a different situation than when you and I were experiencing this. So tell us, do you have DACA now? Yeah, so
2: I had DACA from 2014 to 2017. In August 2017, my family and I had our last immigration hearing, and you know we were lucky and we won the hearing. But when I say it was our last immigration hearing, I mean that very literally. The plan that going into that hearing was, if we lose, we have to leave this country, and we had all these contingencies plans about what we would do if we had to leave this country. That fortunately we did not have to act on, but it was really down to the. Water. Wire for us. And right now, my immigration status is that I have affirmative asylum status, which means that I'm protected from deportation, I can work and I can do all sorts of things and not have to worry. I'm still not a permanent resident because of the delays in the immigration system that were kind of put in by the current administration over the last couple of years. It'll take maybe two more years for my green card to come in. But I'm very lucky that you know at least I'm in that line for the green card and uh, that I, I was able to kind of get out of the situation.
0: I can only imagine the anxiety, Annie, that you and your family had to go through. I mean, growing up, like while I was in college, I would wake up at like 3am, 4am, you know, kind of freaked out thinking, oh, man, Isis is going to pick me up or Isis is going to pick up my mom. And and I think obviously through a lot of support from a lot of psychologists and, you know, a lot of therapy, I've been able to sort of overcome waking up at 3am. And so can you walk us through what does that feel like? I mean, your family... Family, literally from one day to another could be detached from what you all know to be home and what you consider to be home.
2: Yeah, it was, I, you know, I can't, it's really hard for me to express the anxiety of those uh, last two years before that immigration case because every decision that I wanted to make in my mid-20s to grow in my career or in my life, I had to think about, well, what if I just end up getting deported in, when our case is heard, right? So I always make this joke to my friends, or they remember the story that I used to tell all the time about how I didn't want to get a sofa and buy a sofa when I, when I moved in 2016 into my own apartment, because if I just get deported, what am I going to do with the sofa, right? So it seems like a really banal example, but it extended into every aspect of the decisions that I made. You know, I stayed at certain jobs because it was safer for me and my family for, for me to be working at a certain kind of place uh, while we were going through this experience. I, I wanted to go to graduate school since so I think I was about 26, 27, and I realized that I couldn't until I had the immigration case wrapped up because, again, what would happen if I put in all this effort and money to apply to graduate school and then ended up having to move to a new country and help my parents start all over? And, you know, the third. Country of their lives, so it was very paralyzing. It was very hard to make decisions, and I had a lot of friends who were not immigrants or or didn't know the scope of what was going on. So it was also just really hard talking to them about it because they didn't have any kind of frame of reference for what my family and I were going through. So once you actually
0: started telling people, do you think they treated you different? I know that many of them could not relate to what you were going through. But did you feel some type of difference when you talk to
2: people about your life? I I don't think that, you know, the, the people that I'm closest to are good friends. They didn't make me feel any different. But they also just didn't know what to say because they thought it was completely ridiculous that someone could be going through this kind of a situation, right? Like someone who has spent their entire life here has tried their best, has gone to school and done all these things. They were just completely astonished that we live in a country where the government was going to remove that person if they didn't win, you know, their immigration case in this particular way. So it wasn't that, you know, I felt like I was treated any different by my friends, but they just didn't really know how to relate to me. Professionally, I think it was a little bit different because professionally, if I showed up in certain spaces with my, you know, hat on, on as an undocumented person, it would have made it really difficult for me to get certain things done at work or with with other people, you know, because of the kind of political environment that exists in Texas and the lack of awareness about some of these issues.
0: So ultimately, you moved on to California. Tell us a little bit about what you're up to over there.
2: Yeah, so I got my job and moved to California in late 2018, just a year after our immigration case wrapped up, which I was, you know, really grateful for. I had spent my whole life in Texas and wanted to explore living somewhere else, really wanted to try living in California. And so it felt very serendipitous to get the opportunity that I have. But I was recruited into the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which is the private philanthropy of Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan. And immigration is one of their signature causes. So I'm now uh, basically manage their investments on immigration issues with the goal of one day, you know, passing a bill that will help legalize millions of people who are currently undocumented.
0: So that sounds extremely important. Tell us a little bit more of the everyday. What is that like? What what exactly do you do to ensure the investments will give a positive ROI, right? And, And what exactly does an ROI mean to an immigration
2: policy? That's a great question. So philanthropy is a very different sort of industry than I have worked on, and I have worked in uh, compared to my other roles. And also on top of that, CCI is a very different kind of philanthropy, they're much more flexible and can do things in a very different way compared to kind of traditional philanthropies, which often don't even get involved in political causes or political issues. The kind of theory of change that you know we have that I work on every day is that we need to build public support for immigrants and really show people what the consequences are economically, socially, and otherwise of not passing better immigration laws in this country. So I spend a lot of my time talking to nonprofits, talking to activists, talking to other people who are really working front lines on the issue to understand what they're dealing with, to understand what kind of organization they have, and to see if there's alignment between the work that you know a nonprofit might be doing with the way that we want to invest sometimes not just sometimes, often, every day, nonprofits come to us trying to fundraise and pitch to us. But sometimes I also have to be more proactive and kind of create a strategy or a set of an approach on investments from scratch. Determining the ROI of these kinds of investments is very different than something like a traditional financial investment, because politics is not as tangible of a field, and it could do everything right and still not get the outcome that you're looking for, which isn't true when you're investing in issues like scientific research or, or other kinds of more quantitative. Quantitative issues because there's so much in in the political arena that's not in our control. So, just for example, in the last four years under the Trump administration, we knew it would be really hard to pass immigration reform. We knew that wasn't going to be the thing that we were going to accomplish, but we wanted to work on preserving a political window for that issue. And we ended up investing in a way that really highlighted kind of the consequences and the dramatic effects that the last administration had on immigrant communities to show the country and to show elected officials in Congress, hey, you know, when there is a window to pass this issue, we need to get it done.
0: Yeah, so in other words, just setting the table so that we aren't when we're people are ready to actually sit and digest and be ready for some type of policy or law to come through, you all have already set that foundation for that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. So Annie, two last questions here for you. Number one, do you consider yourself an American? Why or why not? And then the last piece is, if you could leave our audience with one or two tips, we have a lot of listeners who are first generation, who obviously immigration is very tied to their story. What would be that? Tip or maybe advice that you would give them?
2: Great. So, for the first question, which is, you know, do I consider myself an American? The answer is absolutely yes, I do. And there's no, there's, I, I don't think I have any kind of a very poignant answer as to why. The answer is that because I've lived here my whole life and I consider myself an American. And as straightforward as that is, I think that's the point, right? That you have generations and generations of young people and also adults who have lived in this country and who want nothing more than to be recognized as Americans to be recognized for what they have given back to this country and right now they they can't do that living in a country for a very long time establishing ties here having family here having a community here absolutely means you belong to that place and I know mean, other country that I have spent any significant amount of time in you know it's, it's very hard for me to say that yes foreign most I'm Pakistani because I was two the last time that I lived there full time, right? So I definitely consider myself an American. As for your second question about what kind of tips or advice do I have for people who might be in a similar situation or who are first generation young people, one of the only pieces of advice that I have for you at this point in time is that you have to remember that hope is a discipline. Hope is something that you have to get up every day and you have to practice and you have to try to have hope even on the days where it feels like everything is working against you. We have been through a really difficult and dark set of times in the last couple of years for immigrants, for people of color, for many vulnerable people in this country. And we know that now we have a moment to rebuild this country, but it's not going to be easy and things are not going to change overnight. At the same time, if you were to ask me, you know, seven years ago, would you be applying for an MBA at Stanford? Would you be working for such a large philanthropy directing their immigration investments at such a young age? I would have laughed at you. I would have been like, what are you talking about? Right? So the reason I always say hope is a discipline is because things can change at any moment. And this is true if you're undocumented. This is true if you are just a first generation college student who is really trying to figure out like, how am I going to get through this experience? How am I going to put myself through school? How am I going to get this done? Hope is a discipline. You just have to keep trying. You have to keep going because you never know when things are going to change. So I think that is an
0: amazing ending to our show. We thank you so much for being with us today. And we wish you the best of luck in your next steps. Yeah, thank you so much. So, folks, that's it for today. I hope that you were extremely inspired by these two amazing ladies and their stories. The theme of hope and resilience resounded throughout both of their journeys. They obviously reminded us that being once undocumented not only impacted their educational journey, but it obviously created a lot of trauma. And now they are spending some time healing and going to therapy, which is very, very important for our communities. Lastly, I I think the key takeaway here is that they continue to be part of this community. And now both of these ladies are huge advocates of trying to pass an immigration bill that is more comprehensive and supporting students in the case of diana so i hope this episode gives you a lot of inspiration for your week coming up until next time